Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have as my guest Randy Barnett, the Patrick Hotung, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Randy graduated from Northwestern College, Harvard Law School. Uh, he currently also is the faculty director for the Center of the Constitution at Georgetown. He's a former prosecutor, a former contracts professor, but mostly, of course, one of the leading constitutional law theorists in our country and probably the most famous academic originalist in the United States. Randy, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me, Eric. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Me too. So let's let's begin here. You were a prosecutor, I think, and then a contracts professor. Tell me about your journey to A, constitutional law, and then B, originalism. Right. Well, I went to, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was 10 years old. By the way, I'm <laughs> writing a memoir now, so anybody oh. who wants to, all, eventually all these details, details will be filled out at greater length. But uh, when I was 10 years old, a television show came on called The Defenders, starring E.G. Marshall and Robert Reed as a father-son criminal defense team in New York. Very realistic for the day. <laughs> um, and unlike Perry Mason, it was actually about the practice of law. Yes. Perry Mason was really about solving murders. Um, and it just, it just hit me that this is what I wanted to do. I later on realized that the reason why it appealed to me so much is because of one single concept or thread that connects all of what I do, which is the idea of justice and wanting to see justice be done. So this seemed like a, 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 a occupation in which that was your job. I went to law school. Well, I took a, a brief, almost a took a detour into philosophy when I was an undergraduate at Northwestern and thought maybe about getting a PhD in philosophy, but thought better of it. Went to plan A, which was to go to Harvard Law School. And while there, you know, as you know, Eric, that the, all the credentialed people class <laughs> say, you know, you're wasting your degree if you become a county prosecutor or a public defender, that you should really, you know, go to work for a big law firm and clerk and all this stuff. And my feeling at the time was, why would I want to do that? I came to Harvard Law School in the hopes of making my preferences, you know, realizing my preferences, not doing something I didn't want to do. And so I stuck with plan A. Um, when I was in law school, I then decided between being, I had interned for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office in Chicago, and I was deciding between doing that and the, and the Cook County Public Defender's Office. It was a close call, uh, but I stuck with the idea of being a prosecutor. I, I decided to be a prosecutor. I went in there and had a great time for four years. Um, it was an unusual period of time when you could go up through the office really quickly. I became a felony court prosecutor after two years, nice. although the two years that led up to it was equally interesting. Um, and then I left to go into teaching, but when I and and that seed had been planted as a philosophy major, thinking maybe I wanted to be a philosophy professor. And then when I was in law school, well, maybe I want to be a law professor. Right. But I hadn't really realized because I had no academic mentorship really at all, how difficult it would be to get a teaching job. I went into the teaching market from the prosecutor's office um, and got uh, maybe six or seven interviews, zero callbacks that year from at the AALS. I then um, uh, went to the University of Chicago as a research fellow, one of the earliest examples of somebody who took wow. a fellowship yeah. after practice. Um, and uh, it was there. Then I went back in the job market um, and had, nothing had really changed about me because, you know, going to the job market in August, so I haven't even really started. Uh, but all of a sudden I had 25 interviews and a whole bunch of callbacks. Eventually got three job offers, one from Northern Illinois, where my co-author Evan Burnick now yes. teaches, one from University of Florida, which for many years I thought maybe was a mistake to turn down. And then one from the Chicago Kent College of Law, being from Chicago, having all my family and friends in Chicago, always planning to spend my whole life in Chicago. I took that job. I was there for 11 years. I was a contracts professor. 
as you note, the reason why is that um, I had completely been turned off of constitutional law as a law student. Larry Tribe was my, my con law professor, but it wasn't his fault. It was the con law casebook in which I would get to one of the good parts of the Constitution, like the Ninth Amendment or the Second Amendment or the Commerce Clause, and I would turn the page of the casebook and I would find the Supreme Court saying, well, that doesn't mean that or that we're not going to follow that or that isn't that doesn't count. So by the end of the course, I concluded that the Constitution was kind of a waste of time um, <laughs> and just proceeded on with my interest in criminal law. But by the time I went to teach, um, I was kind of bored with criminal law. I've only been thinking about criminal law since I was 10 years old. I wanted to do something different. I had had a really, really stimulating contracts course or class for a year from Roberto Unger, oh. who was one of the founders of critical legal studies yeah. movement at Harvard. Yeah. It was very, very challenging. I found out late years later when I visited at Harvard that my classmates had gone to the dean to complain about Unger uh, because they said, we are learning Unger, but we're not learning contract law. <laughs> my feeling was, as somebody who wanted to be a criminal lawyer, that I didn't care if we weren't lear learning. I heard them bitch about that to me, but I didn't know they were complaining to the dean. Justice was, just a big to... justice was a big deal for him, so I bet that appealed to you, the idea. Yeah, well, so I just, you know, I said, I don't care if I'm not learning contract law. I don't care about contract <laughs> law. What I care about is that this is interesting, and interesting is better to me than boring. Um, turns out, years later, when I became a contracts professor, I knew all about contract law, except for one topic of which I was really weak, which is conditions, because we didn't cover that. Right. And I realized that it, all the stuff that I knew about contract law, there was only one place I could have learned it, and that is from Unger's. <laughs> we did learn contract law, but my feeling was is that Unger had made a very frontal assault on the liberal conception of justice in basically the freedom of contract. Yeah. And I, as a law student, couldn't respond to those criticisms. I didn't know how to respond to them. So I thought, well, maybe that's a research agenda. I could start off as a scholar responding to Roberto Unger. Wow. And that's real. And I credited Unger in my first major piece in Columbia Law Review with have in the acknowledgments footnote for having inspired me to be a contracts professor in the first place. So that's that's how contract law fit into it. And my interest in contract law was part of developing a general and transferring of rights from one person to another. Uh, finally, the, the last step in my evolution uh, was as a result of the Federalist Society, which I was completely was a completely unknown to me. I was not a, there was no Federal Society when I was a law student. I'd heard about it, didn't know anything about it. Kind of assumed they were a monolithically right wing group that would not welcome a, a libertarian like me. But one of the students invited me to be to to speak at the fifth annual student symposium at Stanford Law School, which was on the First Amendment. And I said to the student, I said, Brian, you know, I don't do the Constitution. I don't in, I'm not interested in that. He says, oh, come on. You're a smart guy. You could talk for 10 minutes. And I really wanted to go because there were all these hot shots on the program. Right. And I wanted to, you know, as a professor from Chicago, Kent, I kind of wanted to rub shoulders with them. So I said yes. And I was on a panel on freedom of association. Um, and my and my talk on freedom of association was about how there really was such a thing. But then at the end of my talk, you know, mim mimicking, consciously mimicking Dirty Harry, I said, I know what you're thinking. What gives lifetime appointed federal judges the power to protect a right like freedom of association, which actually isn't mentioned in the First Amendment? Um, it's there's freedom of there's assembly and there's speech, but no association. And so next sitting next to me at the time was Frank Easterbrook, who was then on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. And what Easterbrook did was he put a smi he had is, smile. Still is. Sorry, still is does. there. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Well, he but he had already reached there. He yeah. was no longer on the Chicago faculty where yeah. I first met him. Yeah. And so 
he went like this after I asked what gives lifetime appointed judges the, the right to recognize this right that isn't a, in the text of the Constitution. He goes like this. Sitting next by the way, for those so listening then, to this, I'm sorry, Randy. This, I know this is on YouTube, but most people listen to it on without YouTube. Yeah. Randy just made a very sarcastic, I have no idea where, where you're talking about kind of face. I mean, right. or, he, he yeah. gave a big fake grin and he yeah. motions his hands in my direction as yeah. though to say, okay, what's your answer? Yeah. And, in, and you know, my plan, these were prepared remarks. My next line was, well, in the Constitution, it says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, which is the words of the Ninth Amendment. And when I said that, there was a roar of applause that came up from the audience, which who I couldn't see because we had lights on us at the Stanford Auditorium. I didn't know how many people were there, but I got all this. I got this ovation. <laughs> and late, years later, people came up to me and they said, you know, I was at Stanford Law School when you debated Frank Easterbrook on the Ninth Amendment. And the debate consisted of me asking a rhetorical question, him going, making a funny notion and a funny face and me reading the words of the Ninth Amendment. So now to finish the story, I went back to Chicago Kent and I realized, well, first of all, I was surprised that I got this favorable reaction. In fact, I opened my remarks by saying I kind of only I only bought a one way ticket here because I thought it was going to be so hostile to me. Um, and uh, but I, you know, I got this favorable reaction. I thought, you know, I actually don't know anything about the Ninth Amendment other than what it says. And so I had a research assistant go out and find everything that had ever been published written on the Ninth Amendment. And he found a, a stack of papers that was about this high. And I'll say for the audio audience, it was probably about an inch and a half tall of photocopied articles, plus a little teeny book called The Forgotten Ninth Amendment by Bennett Patterson. And I looked at this stack of papers and I thought, you know, if I read everything in this pile of papers, which is not that tall, that will make me the world's leading authority, the nation's leading authority on the Ninth Amendment. So as a cost benefit, it was worth it. And that's what happened. I became an authority in the Ninth Amendment. It's pretty much the only thing I knew about. But it gradually went from there. And I guess there was one more step in that. You asked me about my my attraction to originalism. Yeah. So I was not an originalist at that time. I was a student of Ronald Dworkin's. If you had if I had to describe what approach I was in those days, which I wasn't doing con law, so I didn't really have an approach. Mm -hmm. But if you forced me to say I would have said I was a Dworkinian, which would mean I have a, I take a moral readings approach to the Constitution. Um, and I really admired Ronald Dworkin quite a bit uh, all the way up to his death. And he was very kind to me, actually, as a professor, very generous to me. At any rate, um, so I'm doing research on the original meaning of the, the Ninth Amendment. Then I turn around and do research on the original meaning of the, of the Second Amendment, right to keep and bear arms. But at the time, I'm not an originalist. So what was ha setting up in, in me was what psychologists call um, uh, cognitive dissonance. Yeah. So I'm saying one thing, I am not an originalist, but I'm doing something different. I'm doing originalism and getting a big response. People are very interested in what I have to say. And so I was primed. I was susceptible to to a, something that didn't happen as I was reading an article that was in Sandy Levinson's Reader when I was teaching a seminar at Boston University. And there was a footnote in this article to a something by a guy named Lysander Spooner called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. And I knew Lysander Spooner from my libertarian readings, but only for one essay that he had written called No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority. And I thought, what could, and it was written, it was published in 1845. And I thought, well, what could anybody have said in 1845, much less Lysander Spooner, as to why slavery was unconstitutional? So I had the library get this for me. It turns out it was a 280 page book that Spooner had written as part of a six volume collected works of Lysander Spooner, who knew that he wrote all that stuff. And I read it, and what it ultimately was, Eric, 
was a version of public meaning originalism. Right. He was arguing against the Garrisonians, against the original framers' intent argument that the Garrisonians had been using, which ultimately gets picked up by Chief Justice Taney and Dred Scott. And he was arguing we shouldn't care about framers' intent. We should care about the meaning of the words in the text, uh, which was as they would call public meaning of the words in the text. Right. And I, I, the cognitive dissonance in me made me made me very receptive to this theory of originalism. And I thought I can do something with this. And I, and so it took me a couple of years of working up until I finally came out as an originalist in 1999 when I gave the Brendan Brown lecture at University of Loyola, Loyola University, in New Orleans. And I, I in a piece called an originalism for non-originalist in which I identified in that piece something that came to be called the new originalism. I called yeah. I dubbed it the new originalism in that piece. And that came about as a result of reading Spooner. So I'm probably the only person in the history of the United States. Well, not in the history, but in modern history. <laughs> who became an originalist because I read the anti-slavery writings of Lysander Spooner. Well, uh, 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 thank you, Randy. That's a couple of reactions to all that. And you may, in the first part, you won't know. So I went through Vanderbilt Law School in the early 1980s, 8083, never heard of the Ninth Amendment. I had two very strong con law professors, one of whom is still teaching con law there. Never heard of it. Didn't come up. Wasn't mentioned. You know, I went to clerk. Very just- typical. Yeah, I, I went to clerk and Gibson Dunn in Department of Justice. Never thought about it. Never heard about it. Came to Georgia State in 91. Never thought about it. Didn't hear. And somewhere in the early 90s or somewhere, it must have been in the 90s, I think, you wrote, w- w- when's your first piece on the Ninth Amendment? When did it come out? 87. Right, right. Right after, or right. 80, between 88, 87, 88, 89, after Bork testified. My stuff right. was all in the works right. before Bork testified. And then when right. Bork testified and he he, equate, he analogized the Ninth Amendment to an ink blot. Yeah. Then I put that at the head of all my stuff, which was right. kind of in progress. And then my stuff came out within a few months, and there was a huge market for it because of what he said. So, so sometime in the early 90s, for some reason, I came across your work. And I thought, well, that's interesting since I've never even thought about the Ninth Amendment. In my, you know. um, and I read some of it, and you know I don't agree with your interpretation of it, but I thought it was interesting, provocative, new, and for some reason um, – you know, need to be part of what we're teaching our students because the text is there. I mean, you know, the, 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 if you read, if you just read the text, you think, well, obviously there were rights that are not included that are rights, as you say. Anyway, so I invited you to Georgia State in the mid '90s, if you remember, and you came, and you it wasn't a debate. You just did a hour presentation. I asked a few questions, um, and that was actually part of my personal journey, which is something I don't know if you agree with or not, but which is basically the Supreme Court doesn't care about text. And the, it just never has. I've written pieces in Harvard for it and so on. But the Ninth Amendment, obviously, if we knew nothing else other than what it said, you have to be right. Um, where I think, maybe getting a little substantive for 10 seconds here, I think Judd Campbell's work, recent work, shows us a little bit that rights and judicially enforceable rights didn't necessarily mean the same thing to the founders. So I yeah, think I, I don't just agree with Judd about this. You, you may you may be surprised to hear. I don't think Judd. I, I think Judd has somewhat been over over interpreted by some people. But okay. my reading of Judd and my my reading of how rights were treated at the founding um, is are pretty much the same. I, I didn't consider that to be uh, uh, all that different than what I think. So let me ask you one more question about. It. So so Judd's general thesis, mostly about the First Amendment, but in general, is again judicially enforceable rights and rights are different things. When the Ninth Amendment talks about rights, what's your best case that it's talking about judicially enforceable rights 
as opposed to the notion of rights at the founding, which was much more tied up in natural law, and how the legislature must respect rights, and the executive must respect rights, and so on. It, it, it doesn't talk about, it's not talking about judicially enforceable rights in the post-New Deal sense of mm -hmm. fundamental rights, which trump legislative powers. Right. That's the modern conception of, 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 of rights, which I don't believe pre-existed um, uh, in any major way, the New Deal, um, uh, which it was, it was actually the Caroline Products formulation was a harbinger of what was to come right. later. Prior to that, uh, the existence and the, and the widespread belief in natural rights and the rights retained by the people um, uh, was, a, was, a, was a background against which you construed the scope of, of legislative power. Mm -hmm. Um, and so um, it, it, it provided a, uh, um, a reason a, uh, for constraining um, or at least coming up with a constraining interpretation of legislative power, which itself did not in the early days result in invalidations of laws or, or nullification of laws as we would normally think of today. It most frequent, although courts kept, continued to say that an unconstitutional law that exceeded legislative power would be unconstitution and, and null and void. They used to use that phraseology a lot. Typically what they did is they then adopted what we would today call a saving construction or they would invoke something what we would today call constitutional avoidance and they would interpret the statute more narrowly so as then invalidate the statute um, in any in the modern sense. Um, and so what the background rights retained by the people did um, was uh, pr provide a reason why um, courts rejected the proposition that Congress, and they ultimately, in the, after the 14th Amendment, in serious way, rejected the proposition that states had an unlimited legislative power. Uh, legislative power had to be limited in some way because of the existence of these pre-existing rights. You know, that's interesting. I, I'm, we're, we're taping this on Monday. Um, it'll come out on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, I just finished Adrian Vermeule's new book, um, and... As I found, frankly, with your last book, which we'll talk about in a minute, I was very surprised by the contents of the book. Um, but one thing that you might find interesting is what you just said isn't that far away. In application, it's very different. But in theory, it's not that far away from his view that all of kind of review of law of statutes and, and, and governmental actions um, should should be against should be with the perspective of an overriding sense of law and justice, which is not that different, I think, from the natural rights perspective you just talked about, that it's a way of looking at the laws as opposed to rights trumping things. Is that a fair analogy? Yeah, I mean, yeah. and and I, I haven't read the whole book. It's, it's on my next on my list of things to do, but I did read the introduction. Yeah. Um, and I also was impressed with the introduction um, because I expected... I'm not sure what I expected, right? Um, but I did. I did find that there was. I could be in agreement with 80 to 90 percent of the things he says in the introduction. That the last 10 or 15 percent, however you want to quantify it, is crucial right. um, and leads it may lead to big differences. But there was sort of an underlying because I am not only a natural rights person, I'm also a natural law person. Right. Um, I, and I should have mentioned. I mean, I didn't. Maybe I shouldn't have mentioned it. I can mention it now. <laughs> the professor that had such a profound effect on me when I was an undergraduate was an Aristotelian Thomist professor at Northwestern named Henry Veach, who wrote several books, which I highly recommend. His most popular book was called Rational Man, which was an explanation yeah. of of, of, Nicom of Aristotelian ethics. And he wrote another book on Aristotle himself, on his own thinking on Aristotle. 
called Aristotle, a contemporary uh, um, uh, contemporary reconsideration or something like that. Anyway, um, uh, so I am very comfortable. I, I consider myself to be an adherent to natural law um, uh, as Adrian does. Right. So there's not a big surprise there. Um, uh, I do also believe in natural rights, which I think that Adrian, I predict, is going to reject at some point in the book as an enlightenment deviation from the true path. But in fact, I was very familiar with that because when I went to my professor, I discovered natural rights independently of my professor and I went to him and he was like a grandfather to me. And I said, oh, I was all excited. Here, I said, Henry, you know, or I didn't say Henry, I said, Professor Veach. I mean, here is uh, a natural rights. And I, he got, he really gave me the cold, show, you know, not natural rights. No, 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 we don't do natural. <laughs> That's not so good. Right. Now it turns out at the end of his life, he actually came around and published a book called Human Rights Factor Fancy, which was a natural law defense of natural rights to his credit, not because of my influence, but because of others. Right. Anyway, um, so for those reasons, uh, I sh I, I'm not, I wasn't that, um, I, I thought that the first chapter was interesting. I have an idea where he's going with this. It's going to be a, he's, he is going to, what you're going to, what you obviously would like about him is he is kind of a neo-theorian. Yes, but we theorian. agree on that. Yes, yes. And, and he, and that's your, that's your yeah. thing. Yeah. It's not my thing. Right. Um, uh, but then again, I, he, I, I heard, I mean, I read, I haven't read this firsthand, but I read from people telling me about it that he defends Harlan's dissenting opinion in Lochner, not Holmes's dissenting, dissenting opinion in Lochner, True. which strikes me as odd, but Harlan's uh, dissenting opinion in Lochner is much, much more defensible in my mind and much more reasonable and much more consistent with my approach than Holmes's is. Um, I like Peckham's majority opinion, but I can, you know, I can live with Harlan's opinion. Right. Um, I, when I had to debate Akhil Amar at the Federal Society Lawyers Convention a few years ago, it was a debate about Lochner. Um, unfortunately, Akhil caught me somewhat by surprise because rather than defend Holmes, he defended Harlan. And, I, and it really threw me off because I have a harder time criticizing Harlan than Holmes. I watched that debate and I wrote about it for Dorf on Law and I told people they should watch it because it was an excellent debate. I disagreed with both of you, as is my want, but, um, but I, thought it was, I thought it was a great debate. Um, you and a, So I, I have a blog post coming out tomorrow or Wednesday reviewing the book. It's kind of a mini review of the book. I'm going to write a longer essay about it. Uh, you would you you won't agree with his views on the administrative state. He he strongly, as you know, he strongly supports a strong administrative state. Right. Look, but, I'm happy to have just. I mean, I disagree. I'm used to disagreeing with people. I right. you know, just like you, yeah. I disagree with almost everybody about everything. <laughs> uh, and so, I it's, this is not an. Un, I, I don't doesn't make me uncomfortable. Doesn't make me dislike somebody just because I disagree with them. Unlike my colleagues who judge you judge your character by whether you hold all the right opinions. Well, so I have been tweeting out his book as I go, the, the, the important passages and things I agree with and disagree. I'm being, I'm being killed, Randy, uh, killed by, <laughs> by people on the left saying, why are you wasting your time? This person is evil. Um, it, now, now, uh, he, Eric, that, yeah. that can't, this can't be true because you were already killed by defending my book. <laughs> I know. And, you, and so you, you were, you were dead already. So I, how I, can you be killed again? Uh, so, somehow that happens. I'm going to get to, I'm going to get to that, <laughs> that problem and your book, your, your excellent new book in a, in a minute. Um, but about Adrian, I want to say that, um, you know, he is strongly, obviously opposed to Obergefell and the same sex marriage decisions. He's strongly opposed to Roe and Casey. He's basically opposed to equal rights for gays and lesbians under the law. I, there's nothing I disagree with more probably than that, but there is so much else in this book worth reading, thinking about, you know, absorbing. And and one of the reasons I read it is Jack Goldsmith at Harvard, 
who, for those listening who aren't you know, law professors and lawyers, was a, a top-notch lawyer for the Bush administration and left at a disagreement with some of the policies and was part of, I think, the trade that got Mark Tushnet to Harvard, <laughs> kind of a conservative liberal trade along with somebody else. But my point about is Goldsmith says it is the best book on constitutional theory in decades. Now, I'm not saying it's that. It's very rich. It's very good, and it's worth reading. So when liberals kill me because he's against same-sex marriage, I'm like, okay, I'm against, I, I, I don't agree with him on that, but that doesn't mean the rest of it isn't worth reading. How did we get to a place in the legal academy where liberal law professors are criticizing me for reading and writing both, both about your work and his work in a way that is just honest and just, I disagree with a lot of what you said. I agree with a lot of what you said in, that, in your most recent book, but that isn't the point. The point is it's a good book that should be read. How do we get here? Because they're not because they're not liberals. They're leftists. Say and, more. Uh, say, say more. Say more. Say more. Yeah. Well, liberal, a, uh, a liberal um, in the and, you know, of course, Adrian doesn't like the liberals. No. <laughs> um, and it's ever clear when he goes after the liberals, does he mean classical liberals or does he mean liberals like you? Right. Um, I think there's actually when when the national conservatives talk about liberals, there's an ambiguity about which liberalism they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Neoliberalism or the old good old right. fashioned classical liberal. Right. But really liberal, you know, and elements of conservatism, elements of what we what are modern modernly called liberals and elements of libertarianism share a common umbrella of being part of the classical liberal movement, which does believe in free speech, free free exchange of ideas, um, uh, liberty up to a point. There's mm -hmm. a disagreement about what that point will be. Sure. Libertarians take it farther than the others, but there's still a, a liberty, uh, right. even private property. Sure. Liberals believe in <laughs> proper property. Yeah. They think it should be regulated, and yeah. but they still believe it shouldn't be abolished. Yeah. Um, uh, leftists are really a different breed. Uh, leftists, um, uh, there's we could do a whole show on this, and, <laughs> and I'd rather not. Yeah. Um, uh, but leftists really challenge, they reject all of these liberal values. Um, and it's actually not clear where Adrian is on this either, by the way, because in attacking liberalism, um, the way he, the, the way he has, I haven't read the book, but maybe right. in the book, it comes off better. Um, he actually is, he's aligning himself actually more with the left than he would be even with liberals like you or me. Um, he likes to, he likes the protection of liberalism. He asserts it when he's attacked, right. but he at the same time is uh, criticizing it so, so do you think and it, maybe would not afford that same kind of protection to people with him, with whom he disagrees, which is typical of leftists who actually have also like freedom of speech for them. It's freedom of speech for me, but not for thee, right. um, because they put being right above all else. And if you are wrong, then you are to be canceled ultimately for your errors. Um, rather than understand that the pursuit of the truth is that we can never be too sure about how right we are. And we, in fact, I know I've been wrong about a bunch of things over the years. And so how can I be 100 percent sure I'm 100 percent right now? If I've been if I now disagree with things I previously believed, there's a certain humility associated with being a liberal that leftists and maybe people like Adrian right. uh, don't have that humility about their own views. I think that's fascinating. You know, one of, one of my views on constitutional law is there really are very few right answers. So, so I'm not, and in hard cases. So I'm not, I, I'm very modest about what I, for example, I'm, as you know, I'm pro-choice all the way down. Met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. I volunteer for Planned Parenthood. I feel strongly that women can't be equal without the right to choice. I think Roe and Casey are wrong. 
I may be wrong that Rowan Casey are wrong, um, but I'm willing to say reasonable people can disagree. And it's that comment that reasonable people can disagree about certain things that gets me in trouble all the time. And I don't. Anyway, I want to talk about your last book because I, um, um, by the way, one last thing about Adrian. I think his book on issues like standing, on issues like property and and the administrative state, he'll hate this, but it's true. He takes incredibly progressive views on all of those things. He hates that word. But I'm he, not surprised. And, and, and I'm not surprised because in his, Atlant- in his Atlantic article, which is all I really know yeah. about his views other than the, the new the intro. Yeah. yeah. You know, he adopts work. He adopts Dworkin. Pretty much. Um, Pretty much. Uh, and yeah. he adopts Tushnet. Yeah. Um, and, on, you know, a, you know, he adopts Dworkin's theory, uh, methodological theory, his moral readings theory, which, as I said, Eric, I used to be a Dworkinian, so yeah. I don't think that's like a terrible thing. Right. It's also not very original. Right. And then he adopts Tushness, scorched earth, uh, no apologies, or uh, what is it? What did he call it? Uh, um, uh, whatever Tushnet called his thing about no, beyond defensive crouch yes. uh, liberalism or yes. whatever, progressivism. Yes. He's, he wants to be beyond defensive crouch, whatever he is. Right. So he's just taking... There's a little bit of this, and then he takes on Thayer. Um, Adrian, as far as I can tell, and maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised by the book, is kind of a borrower. He's borrowing here. He's borrowing a little bit from this and a little bit from this and a little bit from that, and he's putting it together as though this borrowing is going to add up to something new, when I I doubt that it is going to be new. Um, But that's why... um, I think you'll I be surprised. I don't remember where we started. I think I think you'll be surprised, Randy. Actually, I, I think okay. I think the way he I am not I say in my review I am not an expert on classical legal theory, and there's a bunch of that in this book. But I think the way he uses common good constitutionalism and classical legal theory to support the points he makes is original and smart, whether or not we agree. It doesn't matter. I think, and, and, and that's fine because I'm not totally surprised by that because of the, I read the introduction yeah. and I thought the introduction was smart. Yeah. Um, I will also say this because I think it's important for everyone to know is that I believe in the common good too. The question as an end, um, there are two problems. There are two issues that believing in the common good gives rise to is identifying actually what it is, sure. which we only can know imperfectly. Yes. And then what are the appropriate means to accomplishing that end? And most people who are focused unduly, let's say, on the common good are doing so at the expense of focusing on the means that are necessary to achieve the common end. So it's my, my view of natural rights is they and I and I wrote a book about this called The Structure of Liberty, Justice and the Rule of Law. Natural rights are the means to achieving the common good. And I even agree generally uh, in general terms, with what I, what I take Adrian's conception of the common good to be, I, we disagree on. There is something we disagree about, but there is one it, general sense in which we agreement. I think it's human flourishing. Human flourishing uh, um, is what the common good is uh, that we should be aiming at. A society that is structured in such a way as people can flourish. Now there is a disparity with amongst. Aristotelians about whether human flourishing is an individualistic thing right. or whether it's a collective thing. Right. And so there's going to be some disagreement there. But the whole idea that that the na- natural rights are an essential mean, the claim that natural rights are an essential means to the common good, which is human flourishing, is really not all that uh, radically different than the framework that uh, that uh, that Adrian no, I think and it's very others close. want to bring to bear nowadays. No, Randy, I think it's very close. I look forward to you. I hope you read it and I hope you share your comments because I'll I be will, I, I know it's my next it's next on my thing to do. I have <laughs> to do it. And you know, Josh Hammer 
uh, and I have reached a tentative agreement to do a joint review of Adrian's right. book. Well, I have to be um, honest but, with you and say I, I, I'm not interested in reading Josh Hammer, but I am interested in reading about, in reading what you say. So I, I will definitely. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we can even do it. We don't know for sure if we're capable of reaching right. agreement on this, but it'll be interesting if we can. Okay. Enough about Adrian. Let's talk about you. Um, so as you mentioned, Evan Burnick, who who I consider a friend and who I've tried to help uh, throughout his career. I love Evan. I think he's great. Um, I strongly recommended him to NIU. He knows that. Um, and I'm so glad he got that job. Um, so you guys wrote an article about the, uh, a, a, what you thought was a unified approach to originalism, um, uh, which is the letter and spirit approach. And then your most recent book with Evan, it's your most recent book, and it's the book you both wrote together, um, The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, The Letter and the Spirit. Surprise, yes, hold it up. For those on YouTube, you can see it. Um, I reviewed this book a few weeks ago. I think it's an excellent book, Randy. I've reviewed other of your books, and I, you know, you know, you know my view on your work. I think it's all interesting and provocative. Sometimes I think the label originalism is misleading, and we can fight about that or not later. But on this book, um, first of all, why don't you tell the people what is your, if you can sum it up in a few sentences, which does not do justice to the theory, the letter and spirit of the Constitution. And I want to be very specific. A plaintiff goes, I'm not talking, I don't want to talk theoretical or, or, or philosophical. A plaintiff goes to a judge and says, this law is violating my constitutional rights, whether it's state or federal. I want you to, to, to stop this law from violating my constitutional rights, whether it's rendering it null and void or simply as applied to me, it doesn't work. I don't care about that part of it. How does a judge go about figuring out under the letter and spirit approach whether the plaintiff should win, whether whether this law or practice or decision should not be applied to this plaintiff because it violates the Constitution. Well, a necessary but not sufficient thing that you have to do is identify what the meaning of the Constitution is. Okay. So the letter part of the theory mm -hmm. is identifying what the communicative content of the text of the Constitution is. When the word arms is used in the Second Amendment, does it refer to weapons or does it uh, refer to the limbs to which <laughs> our hands are attached? <laughs> um, uh, domestic violence, does domestic violence refer to spouse abuse or does it refer to fighting in the streets, right. insurrection? Right. Um, and so in order to figure out what, I, and the word dollar, does it mean Federal Reserve note or does it mean a Spanish, the, the amount of silver in a Spanish silver dollar? Um, so you have to identify what does the text of the word mean? The, the letter of the word of the Constitution means that is the original meaning approach. Um, and then you then have to once you've identified its meaning, you have to put it into action by applying it um, uh, or giving it legal effect and applying it to particular cases like your your hypothetical plaintiff who's coming in to make an argument. And in some of the provisions of the Constitution, they might it might they might be automatically obvious how they apply Two senators means two senators, 35 years of age means 35 years of age, even though even in those cases, you still have to have uh, a decision to follow that you'd still need to say, oh, but, you know, we're going to actually say that a president who is not 35 is not eligible. You know, you got to put you have to give even the 35 year old clause, the text, a legal effect. That's what we call construction. The spirit part is how you do constitutional construction. As you know well, Eric, and you've you know, said many times, um, uh, 
or, or as you've alleged many times, <laughs> the construction zone, um, um, it, you think gives the game away. It's no longer originalism yes. because judges in the construction zones aren't aren't bound by original meaning because by definition, original meaning is not telling you exactly what to do in the construction zone. And therefore, it's living constitutionalism. And you should just admit it as much. I, I, I know that by heart. Thank you. Th- the, thank you. Thank you for at least listening to me. No, no. I mean, I mean, this sincere- no, Randy, I mean this sincerely. Thank you for at least listening to my arguments, which, you know, you don't agree with them and that's fine, but at least you know what I'm going to say, which is good. Yeah, I know. I, I have memorized it. It's, <laughs> like it, it's ingrained in me like a catechism. Um, the, um, uh, the spirit is, uh, is a theory of construction that we have put forward in 2018 in that article, yeah. which is con- intended to provide a constraining theory of construction. It's a response to criticisms by you and many others uh, in, including many originalists who are conservative, that mm-hmm. somehow the recognized in the construction zone gives away the game of originalism. Right. Uh, taking that criticism to heart, we provided what we think is a constraining approach to construction that says that when you are applying the original meaning of the letter, then you must do so, and you want to do so faithfully. Faithfully means doing so co- cognizant of the original function, the original ends, the original object, the original purpose, the original problems for which that clause or that passage was put there in the Constitution to solve. Um, and that is what we call the spirit of the Constitution. That's what historically was called, by, not by, by others, the spirit of the text. And so um, it's a way of constraining the construction zone, not expanding the construction zone. Although critics of the book, uh, not you, but others, have argued that, that's, that the spirit part is very expansionary, uh, expansionist. It's really not. It's actually meant to be constraining um, in a way that Framers' intent, originalism, tried to be, and in fact, but was mistaken in so many different ways. Well, the last thing you said is interesting to me. Um, this goes both to the shift from original intentions to original public meaning. It happened around in the 1990s. But also it goes to your theory of, of constitutional interpretation. Um, when trying to figure out the spirit of the First Amendment or the Second Amendment, the people who wrote it, discussed it, debated it, and ratified it, don't their intentions, that's not everything by any means, but don't they count a lot? See, to me, it's always been the case, I think, and I wrote this. In fact, I wrote it in a piece I wrote to you and Larry Solomon, your former colleague. I I think that that one of the best evidences of original meaning, not the only one, is original intentions. And if there's enough original intention that is similar and we can collectivize, kind of, then isn't that very strong evidence of original meaning? Yeah, we've always, we've always said that it was strong okay. evidence. It, okay. it could be evidence of it. We've mm-hmm. never denied that. Okay. It, it, but what we deny is that two things. Number one is that, that the meaning is reducible to intention as opposed to intention being evidence of yes. the communicative content. And I agree with and that. Secondly, I agree with that, by the we way. Deny, we deny that, that, the ki- that private privately held individual intentions or expectations of how things are going to work out are the kind of intentions that are evidence of meaning. In te- they public in- the publicly known intentions, the publicly known functions and purposes, these can inform what the meaning of the text was right. when the meaning of the text was susceptible to more than one meaning. If everybody, So for- here's a good example, um, which, which takes us away from current cases and controversies and, ma- yeah. and easier to discuss. Uh, In the book that I referenced earlier, Lysander Spooner, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, what he said um, was that um, 
uh, unless the intentions to, to sanction slavery in the Constitution were made were, with irresistible clearness, you citing U.S. B. Fisher, a, a Marshall opinion on yes. the Necessary and Proper Clause, um, then you really needed to opt for the innocent meaning of a clause. And since the founders did not expressly use the word slavery, um, and each of the clauses he claimed was susceptible to an innocent meaning as well as a guilty meaning, that in, because the founders didn't actually put their intentions in the document, we should opt for the innocent meaning. Now, I went for 20 years kind of back and forth on whether I thought Spooner's argument worked or it didn't work and it worked, but it, then it didn't seem to work. And I really didn't know where to go with this until um, originalist theory developed to the point where it became clear that context matters a lot. Um, and once you, be under, you once you take context, which is what I think you were referring to and calling intentions into account, it becomes pretty obvious to me that people in the general public, when they saw the slavery clauses that didn't use the word slavery, knew of course. they were referring to slavery. Of course. Yeah. And so that's their meaning. Right. And and so Spooner's argument fails. Right. Um, uh, Douglas, who adopted Spooner's methodology, never really adopted. Uh, this conclusion by Spooner, right. um, Douglas, what Douglas did with it, which I also, which I still think is correct, uh, and that is that Douglas disputed that the Constitution enshrined in the document the concept of property and man. That it did not do, and 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 Sean Wilentz's wonderful book um, called No Property in Man demonstrates why and how it was resisted when Southerners tried to put property in man in the text. Right. The framers refused to do so. It was a coalition of Virginians plus Northerners. Um, and so Douglas said the concept of property in man is not there. Slavery, the practice of slavery authorized by local law is there, but not, it doesn't ratify the concept of property in man, which turned out to be important in terms of whether uh, Congress had the power to restrict the extension of slavery into other areas or somehow into the District of Columbia. Anyway, so the point here is that these publicly known as intentions in this publicly known context will inform the original meaning such that I think at the end of the day, it shows that Spooner's reading of the Constitution was wrong. What do you do with Oren Kerr's um, and others, of course, uh, arguments? Oren did a ton of blog posts about this back in 2012 that I know Ilya Soman responded to, but I think you did too. Um, that this is really, that the spirit, you weren't calling it that back then, but that, I think that's what it was, um, that, that the level of generality game is just too hard. That, that, that there's no, there's often no originalist basis for selecting which level of genera generality we're going to use for a particular provision. So, for example, Steve Calabresi, Ilya Soman both argued that same-sex marriage bans by the states are unconstitutional because the 14th Amendment really has kind of an anti-caste principle, and that anti-caste principle is enough to forbid gender discrimination and then take one more step and, and same-sex marriage bans are gender discrimination. To which Oren said, that might all be right, but it has nothing to do with originalism. That just has to do with manipulating the levels of generality because we do know, and Chris Green and I have fought about this for we're both we're, we're good friends, but we've fought about this for years, the vast majority the collective intent, or that's the wrong word, context, the, the context of the 14th Amendment is not to protect gender discrimination. No way, no chance, no how. There may have been a few people who thought that, but the overwhelming weight was no, and women were property of their husbands, they couldn't practice law in many states, and so on. So, so my question to you is, is how do we deal with that kind of indeterminacy? The, the indeterminacy of picking the level of generality. 
Well, a lot of this needs to be shown and not asserted. Okay. Uh, the generality problem, uh, the generality level of generality issue has been around for a while since yeah. Drive and Torf wrote about it. Yeah. Um, uh, in criticism of Glucksburg, so that's quite a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but this is something that needs to be shown on a on essentially a clause by clause basis. One way. So the, I want to make two points about it. Number yeah. one is under our reading of the spirit and the letter, and this is really important, we do not believe the spirit trumps the letter, overrides the letter. Uh, the letter comes first, and then to the extent it's necessary, you can consult the spirit. That's not the way the spirit has historically been used in modern times, which is to override the letter, to substitute for the letter. The real purpose is going to be X. We're going to follow the purpose and forget about the letter. We reject that. Uh, the second thing is that um, a lot of these claims uh, depend on adopting a very thin theory of certain key clauses of the Constitution, the ones that you always refer to as the litigated clauses, the yes. ones that people dispute about. Yes. You're prepared to concede that all the other clauses maybe have more definitive meanings, but the ones we argue about, they're the ones that are more open-ended. One way, one way of dealing with that, not the only way, is simply to say those clauses actually have more specific meanings. Um, uh, then have been acknowledged by people who would like them to be thin <laughs> to allow them a big room to run with respect to how you use it. And that is what our book is attempting to provide. Um, it's a thicker theory of the privilege immunity clause, a thicker theory of the due process of law, a thicker theory of the equal protection of the law. There is less um, uh, room for debating the level of generality once you flesh out a thicker meaning of these clauses. That's and so then there's less room for construction, less room, less need to right. appeal to the spirit. But there's always some need to appeal to it because you need to decide, well, how are we going to implement the meaning we find? And that's interesting because that's exactly what your former colleague and friend, I think, Larry Solomon wrote in his most recent Northwestern Law Review article on what he called originalism versus living constitutionalism. He actually cited my work and said, if Siegel is right that the litigated clauses are radically indeterminate, then new originalism and, and living constitutionalism emerge. He's not shown that. Nobody else has shown that, which is a which is a fair statement. I think both are fair statements. If I'm right, I win, but I haven't shown that I'm right. Okay, those are those those are fair. Um, but here's my issue of the thick and thin thing you just mentioned. I, I we talked about this last week in San Diego. So about three months ago, I started reading a lot about the privileges or immunities clause. Prior to now, I've been reading it to teach it, you know, to understand it reasonably well. But then I read Kurt Lash, um, I read uh, Ilan Worman, and I read your and Evan's book. And frankly, I like your and Evan's book the best of those three. Um, but, but you all three disagree strongly about what the privileges or meaning clause in the 14th Amendment means. Strongly, in ways that would really affect con law on the ground. You think it applies to unenumerated rights? Kurt Lash does not. Um, Ilan Worman thinks it's only... It, 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 I think he thinks that Georgia can take away free speech rights as long as they take it away from everybody. <laughs> okay, so but but you're all three. I mean, I have enormous respect for all three of the all four of you these scholars. Um, you and Evan wrote the book. That's another way to be thin, you know. It's not just that we don't that history is is uncertain, but really smart people looking at the same history disagree. What do I do with that? The la the lack of agreement doesn't. That's an epistemic issue as opposed to an ontological issue. The lack of agreement 
um, goes to our knowledge of things. It doesn't necessarily go to the reality of things. Right. Um, it, scientists disagree with each other all the time. In fact, it's the nature of science yes. to disagree with other scientists. Yes. But that doesn't mean there isn't a there there, a reality that they're attempting to understand. Uh, and that some of them are right and some of them are wrong. There's a reason why experiments are trying to set up to try to figure out who's right and who's wrong. So I, I don't think, I, I just think that um, if you if the existence of disagreement is enough uh, to create discretion uh, in the part of whoever has been given constitutional powers, then you can always manufacture disagreement. Now, I'm not saying that Kurt and and Elon have manufactured anything, right. but you can always do it. It's not that hard to do it. So no. my my response is not going to satisfy you because you know I'm sure you've heard it me say it before. Um, if you're the jury. Um, it, you know, the, the job of an advocate, when I was a prosecutor, the job, my job was not to convince the defense attorney that the defense attorney was, <laughs> that his client was guilty because he already knew his client was guilty. Um, that's great. That's a joke. <laughs> that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, my job was to convince the jury. Right. So I put on my case, the defendant put on his case and the jury said, well, we weren't there. We can't be 100 percent sure because nobody can be 100 percent sure of anything. But we are pretty clear that the prosecutor's case is better than the defense case, and it's enough better to satisfy the reasonable doubt right. standard. Right. And so we will convict. Or they say the other one. No, no, right. you know, we oh, were you not nev there. You never lost, did you, sure. Randy? You never lost the case. That couldn't have happened. <laughs> um, I, I had, I had, uh, I did lose a jury trial, a misdemeanor jury trial before <laughs> I got to felony trial court. I, I didn't lose a felony trial court jury. <laughs> um, lost my share of bench trials. Anyway, so the point here is that um, um, it's up to the audience. Fair enough. To read our three books, Fair make enough. up your own mind yep. as to who's right. Yep. And and then here's the other thing that's really important. And, and this, I think, I know you will agree with this. Um, you keep an open mind. Um, and by the way, if you only read our book um, and you thought, not you, but if anyone just reads our yep. book and think, well, that sounds right to me, I'm persuaded. You should only be conditionally persuaded. Right. You should not be absolutely persuaded because <laughs> right. you need to wait for genuine peer review to take place. And what is pe genuine peer review? Not the kind that goes on in journals. Right. But the genuine peer review is to have people like Elon Worman, who knows a lot about the 14th Amendment, and Kurt Lash, who knows a lot about the 14th Amendment. Let them say where we went wrong. Yeah, I and agree. Then I you'll, agree. Then you'll be able to have a more knowledgeable judgment about whether our theory, which you sounded good to you, yeah. is actually right after you see it critiqued by people unlike you who know a lot more about the 14th Amendment than you do. Now, I'm the same way when I'm hearing a plausible argument about, let's say, executive power. Michael McConnell will have his book about presidential power. Right. And I'll think, well, this sounds really good to me. Yeah, I like it. I mean, it sounds persuasive. But I'm going to reserve judgment ultimately until I hear what Cy Krishma Prakash says about it, what, um, you know, other people who know about executive power, what Steve Vladek says about it, whoever it is. Yeah. I want to hear what they have to say about it. And then I'll have a better sense of what I think is right. So this is all all this is about, Eric, is negotiating the real world in which we can't be 100 percent sure. But but we also believe there's a there there. Um, and now it's possible that there is no there there. I mean, that's argument has been made as well. Right. And you may believe it and other people may believe it. We have a different discussion about that. Yeah. But assuming but if if the argument is simply based on un, uncertainty and disagreement, the existence of disagreement does not presuppose does not prove that there is no truth of the matter about which we are disagreeing. 
It's funny, Randy. I read I read Michael McConnell's book a few months. He was on my podcast. I read his book last year, um, and I was somewhat persuaded by a lot of it. And then I read uh, Judd Rubenfeld from Fordham, and he disagrees completely with all of it. And that made me think that I agree with McConnell a little bit less. But you're right. That is the process one has to go through. I want, we're running out of. I could talk to you forever. We're running out of time. I do want to. So this most recent book. Do I read? Did I read this book correctly? I hope I did because I wrote about it. I think what you're suggesting in this book, and I, I want to make, I want people to understand this because of a personal, selfish agenda that I've been going through for the last few years, which is I want people to understand that you and I can disagree on 80% of things, agree on 20% of things, or it's probably not that bad, but still have a robust, fun, interesting conversation. And that's and be civil to each other, most importantly. And, and so I've been, that's why I'm reading Adrian's book, to be honest, and, and, and so on and so forth. So, Well, it's an important book. We all need to read it. Yeah, that's what I think. Um, and so is yours. Do I, I think what you argue in this book is that um, Congress under Section 5, let's just talk, you talk about a lot of different issues. We have time to focus on one. Under Section 5 of the 14th Amendment, the court has limited what Congress can do in very serious ways, in, sh- in, in very, a number of cases, that progressives don't like. I don't like most most progressives don't like. You give Congress a lot more power, I think, under your reading of Section Five than the Supreme Court does. I have that right, right? Correct. And and that's can, right. Can, I mean, I changed my view as I told you when we were in San Diego. Yeah. I actually modified my view on each of the clauses as a result of the research that Evan and I did. Right. Um, so there are twe- there are things about different about each one of these clauses than I previously talked about in restoring the lost Constitution because yep. of the evidence. Um, and, um, I didn't really ever say much about section five powers before, but yes, I think the courts have unduly constrained Congress's section five powers because I do think the court is right to say section five powers are remedial of the other provisions of the, of the 14th amendment, including section one. So they are limited to remedying violations of, of the constitutional injunctions that are in section one. So it matters what Section 1 means. Of course. But then what we say is that the courts have unduly restricted the scope of Section 1 because of concerns about judicial competence. Now, that may be a reasonable reason why courts should not be protecting the full scope of the Equal Protection Clause, the Equal Protection of the Laws Clause. But if what you're, if, if they're adopting a, a, a more modest reading of the Equal Protection of the Laws Clause because of judicial incompetence, that should not automatically apply to congressional competence. So that's where so they should what they ought to do is recognize the fact that what they are saying is this is a, a judicially under enforced norm. Right. We can't do it. Right. But here's what the meaning is. We can't implement it because it's not within our competence to develop a remedy scheme, let's say, for the failure of the of local government to provide a compensate to provide protection. But that doesn't mean Congress can't do it. Now, there might be scrutiny attached to whatever Congress tries to do, but it's not going to be scrutiny that's going to be limited by what courts can do. And there that does give rise to a broader conception of Congress's Section 5 powers than the court currently recognizes. And I want to say this because it's, I think it's really important. Um, I think you are known as someone who's a strong believer in, in – I don't mean this term exactly, but states' rights. And, and you're certainly skeptical. I, I, I just prefer to say federalism, not okay, states' fair, rights. Fair enough. Fair, I, that's where I was hesitating there. I didn't want to um, – right. I don't like states' rights at all, but I like federalism. Federalism. Um, and traditionally, your views on – government power in general and Congress's power are somewhat libertarian. I hope that's fair. Um, 
But here, you're giving Congress a whole lot more power than current law provides to Congress in a way that I might hypothesize is antithetical to some of your priors of federalism. But, you, but, but, but I will say I've read a lot about this one issue about the 14th Amendment. I think you're exactly right. And by the way, on this one, I think it's pretty clear. I think the, the context of Section 5 was we expect Congress to be at least as primary an enforcer of the um, whatever Section 1 means, which we could debate forever, uh, as the courts, maybe more so. Is that maybe fair? more so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we're not. Gi- I'm not giving them anything. The Constitution gave it to them, okay. and the Constitution <laughs> was amended by the Republicans, and it's the Republicans who gave it to them. So, and, and the and the and the and those in the ratifying states, they're, they're the ones that gave them this power, not me. Unfortunately, the descendants um, but, of the descendants. I, we have to argue a little bit. The descendants of those Republicans are Democrats today, but that's okay. Well. <laughs> I know, I know the, fam- the famous uh, switch theory, right? I, I, I'm familiar with the famous switch theory. Anyway, um, the um, uh, uh, so, yeah, I think that um, Congress has more power uh, and they and but I, I don't know if which was pri- I, I, I don't have a view about which was primary. Congress wanted to empower itself. Yes. To pass civil rights laws, which is then did. Yes. On the other hand. The Republicans were fearful that when Democrats returned to the Congress, they would repeal the civil rights laws. Yep. And therefore, they wanted to enshrine them in the text of the Constitution so that judges right. would be able to enforce them. So I don't know. It depends on which contingency you're right. talking about. They wanted to prote- they wanted a dual protection. Now, they were not optimistic about judges because they'd already lived. They'd already grown up in a system in which judges were were basically in uh, uh essentially dominated by the slave power and therefore were issuing pro-slavery kind of rulings. So they were very skeptical about judges. Uh, but nevertheless, they wanted it in the Constitution so it couldn't be repealed. Right. Yeah, and no, they I'm, did it. And they did it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with. I'm, and then I'm, the Supreme Court undercut it. I mean, the Supreme Court lived down to their expectations about what the court might do to their worst expectations by gutting the, the 14th Amendment, by eliminating the heart of the 14th Amendment, which was the Privileges and Immunities Clause, um, uh, and condemning, uh, um, and, and which was, and we didn't, no, nobody, we haven't said this yet, uh, in, but, and it's a little late in the podcast to mention it, where the 13th Amendment is primarily about fighting the evils of slavery and abolishing slavery in this country. People thought at the time, rather naively as it happens, that if they'd abolish slavery, get rid of slavery, everything would be fine. But what they hadn't bargained on was the, was the predominant, was the virulence of white supremacy um, that reasserted itself in the absence of technical legal slavery. And the 14th Amendment was an anti-white supremacy yep. um, uh, amendment. Um, and then when the Supreme Court gutted it, it meant that white supremacy was able to thrive uh, for another 80 years beyond where it should have been able to, given if the Republicans' handiwork had actually been put into effect. Now, no one's more critical than I am of the Supreme Court's move from protecting the newly freed slaves to railroads, which is basically what happened in the late 19th century. But my question, I, I, one, I, you know, real quickly, once the North left the South in 1876, I don't know how much blame to give to the Supreme I don't know if those decisions would have been enforceable in the South. And it, had the court gone the other way in the civil rights cases and even Plessy, I, I am not 100 percent sure the, 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 the South would have obeyed. I mean, I just don't know the answer to that question. Um, well, pa- Pamela Brandwine's view um, is that um, feder- that the federal government maintained a pretty decent 
um, enforcement posture through the Justice Department mm -hmm. for some time after that. Okay. Uh, it's true that when the Democrats finally got the presidency, they gutted that. Yeah. But then when the Republicans got the presidency back, they funded it again. Okay. Um, and so um, it was they, they did continue to try. Um, but the Supreme Court made their efforts more difficult because it basically hemmed in what the Justice Department could do by way of lawsuits around the country. I agree that the, with, the withdrawing the military um, did have its consequences, um, uh, but Republicans kept fighting. And some of this fighting, as people have been quick to point out, is in their own self-interest because they wanted to be a national party, not a sectarian, not a sectional party. Right. And that meant maintaining their electoral presence in the South, both amongst the freed blacks and amongst white Republicans. And that required the 15th Amendment, among other things, to try to ensure the continuing existence of the Republican Party as an electoral party. So they had self-interested reasons for doing this, but that's OK. People operate, you know, they pursue the right things for self-interested reasons all the time. Anyway, uh, you're, it's, it, it's a point well taken that the withdrawal of the military um, and to some extent, the lessening of interest in Congress because of elections did have an effect. But nevertheless, uh, Brand, Pam's work uh, is really interesting, and I urge people to look at it to see the extent to which civil rights enforcement w did continue to be attempted until really uh, the, 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 the beginning of the, the 20th century right. when the Democrats um, just suppressed it. Yeah, and I saw some just dazzlingly horrific uh, statistics about voting, black voting in Mississippi, for example, which in late 1880s, you know, was very high and stuff. And by 1910 was virtually non-existent because of literacy tests and character tests and all that. The book I is, I, the, I want to plug the book again because I, I wrote about it. I think it's a book worth reading. The Original Meaning of the 14th Amendment, it's Letter and Spirit, by Randy and by Evan Burnick. Listen, if, if you're listening to this and you fancy yourself liberal or progressive or think you know what Randy stands for or whatever, Read this book, please. I, I, as I think I told you in San Diego, um, a, a prominent national figure on the left came after me for positively reviewing your book and said, and I quote, I don't need to weed, read white people white explaining the history of the 14th Amendment. And I thought that's offensive on so many different levels. But the saddest thing about it probably is that he'd actually agree with much of your interpretation of the 14th Amendment. He doesn't even know it because he won't read it. And, and, right. and, and it's also a standard that's highly selectively applied to some and yeah, not to others. Fair I have one last question. And we're going at this for an hour. Thank you so much. I have one last question I'm very curious about. And I don't know how I don't know how you, I know you well enough to know most of what we're going to talk about. This I don't know. Um, and I, don't, I doubt you remember this. I want to remind you of something. There's no reason you would remember. And then ask you the question again. Somewhere around 2013 or 14. I tried to get about 20 of the most prominent constitutional law professors in the country to sign an op-ed or some, some kind of document pushing for cameras in the court. And um, many, you do remember. Okay. And many, many, I, 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 you don't remember. Yeah, well, I, I don't remember the letter, but I, I, I'm laughing at the issue that you and I have talked about okay. and debated in the past. Um, and, and you were against cameras at the time. And the reason was interesting to me. Uh, I don't agree with it, but it was interesting, which was that, well, part of the reasoning you gave me, because you, you, you were very nice. You wrote to me and explained why you wouldn't sign it. You didn't just say no. You explained why. You said the court needs to be somewhat, I don't want, want to put words in your mouth, but, but the public needs to understand that the court acts, I'm not saying this well at all. The court needs space to be kind of private 
um, to do the counter-majoritarian things you want the court to do, putting them on television would would drain that a little bit, making them more one of us and all that kind of stuff. Are you still against cameras in the court? It's a two-part question. Are you still against cameras in the court? And is there any reform to the court you would favor? Ma- um, major reform. Yes, I'm still against cameras okay. in the Supreme Court. Okay. Um, I'm not so sure I feel as strongly about other courts, but okay. as I do about the Supreme Court. And okay. it's just, over, to me, there's multiple reasons. Uh, the one that you just uh, remembered me yeah. making yeah. is maybe, you know, one is a little bit down the list of okay. reasons. Um, first is the showboating problem, mm-hmm. um, which we've seen evidence of even with audio in the court. Right. Um, uh, and when we have people like, I think Justice Breyer in the last uh, in the argument uh, in the Dobbs case, I think it was Dobbs, um, in which he just seemed to be giving a speech to the public. And he said, I want the public to hear this and I want the public to read that. I mean, it's like that's not an oral argument. You should be asking questions of counsel uh, and getting responses. Uh, but he was just directly appealing over the heads of the both litigants uh, to the general public. I and mean, this is a perfect example of what cameras in the courtroom encourages um by the secondly, way kavanaugh, kavanaugh did that too but go ahead second secondly <laughs> and i know I, we really just don't have time to debate this but secondly it would encourage the kind of demonstrations that we saw uh, during the the supreme court hearings especially the kavanaugh hearings i sat in the kavanaugh hearings and they were being interrupted every 10 or 15 minutes by yeah. screaming people who yeah. then had to be escorted out and were immediately released after being quote arrested um, uh, with no consequences. And uh, this is exactly what would happen in the Supreme Court um, uh, if if cameras were allowed in the courtroom, because it's a performative act on the part of the demonstrators. And and um, and and thankfully, this hasn't ha- it has happened, but it hasn't happened that much. Uh, and finally, there is this uh, counter majoritarian. This, you know, this should be a working session and not a performative section uh, by the judges, by the justices. And um, it isn't always a it isn't always a working session, but it should be. And camera is only going to make it less likely to be. And so I am opposed to that okay. as well. Let me just uh, say I that I have that... seen good examples of cameras in the courtroom, um, like I, like in the um, the Rittenhouse case. Right. Um, uh, cameras in some of these trial courts have actually allowed people to make their own judgments about what's going on in these cases in a right. way they would never be able to do on the basis of reporting. Right. Um, and so I do think there's a role. It's, uh, it, it, but in the Supreme Court, no. Okay. Let me, I'm not, not going to argue. Court, let me, let me right. just say that, that I, I wrote a piece called Invisible Justices that addresses all of those arguments. And if people want to hear or read the opposing arguments, they can read it there. Is there any reform you would favor, strong reform of the court that you would favor? Um, I have an idiosyncratic desire for the court to re, to re, to return to seriatim opinions, yeah, um, and and eliminate opinions of the court. Opinions of the court have led to um, uh, the attitude, a kind of judicial supremacy attitude, that opinions of the court are like statutes that need to be parsed and applied to cases in the future, as opposed to deciding the case in front of them. I think if you had seriatim opinions with every justice saying why it is he or she decided to do what they did, um, you get the reasoning of the justices, but you wouldn't have this opinion of the court to, to which would, and, and as you know very well, Eric, this was a innovation uh, of John Marshall. Now, yep. El, uh, Oliver Ellsworth had tried to do it, but it never caught on. Right. It was Marshall who successfully got opinions of the court, and then he wrote them, yes. um, and then they were unanimous in most cases, and that was to elevate 
the weightiness of a Supreme right. Court decision relative to the other branches. I would uh, reduce the weightiness of Supreme Court opinions correspondingly by going back to the seriatim uh, approach, which is what James Madison, when he was reading McCulloch versus Maryland in a, in a private letter, he said, I wish the judges, I wish we had more than one opinion in this case. He had signed the law. He had signed the he signed the law, the statute into law that, that created the bank that was upheld in the case, and he didn't like the opinion, and he wanted to hear what the other justices had to say. <laughs> right. um, and so I'm with Madison on this. So that would be my reform. So that's fascinating. I didn't know you felt that way. I think it's a fascinating point to end with. Anything, anything that weakens the Supreme Court, as you know, is fine with me. So I'm in favor of that proposal. Like, we agree. I think that would be. A good, I'm, I might even be in favor of of not allowing official dissents. I mean. That would come out in the, in the opinions you're describing, but I don't like I don't like the five four. This is the law. This is the dissent. The dissent will become law in thirty years if you wait long enough. All of that feels just kind of heavy. Anyway, Randy, I, I, we could talk a lot longer, but thank you so much for doing this. I've I've learned a lot as usual when I talk to you, and I we uh, we agree. Well, on it's, you know, it's because it's because of the generous honorarium you offer yeah. in order to, uh, <laughs> for me to be up here. So all the other people who you invite on need to know that Eric is very very generous um, in how much he pays to be on his podcast. Okay, so since you raised that, I have to ask you one last question. That actually, I think, no, the, yes, I, mean, I take it back. I take no, it no, back. I have to because this is great. So my dear friend Erin Chemerinsky, who probably. Um, disagrees with you and you disagree with him as much as any two people in constitutional law today. Um, Erwin's rule about conferences and things is he'll show up without an honorarium. I know you're being kidding. He'll show up without an honorarium as long as everybody else does. But if one person gets paid, then he wants to be paid, which given that he's Erwin Chemerinsky, I think is fair. But here's what I want to ask you. I believe you and he are distantly related, which is something that I don't think anybody knows. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, we have a mutual cousin, and uh, I used to hear about Erwin growing up because he was this brilliant guy from that other side of the family. Yeah. We have a mutual cousin. It kind of makes us distantly related. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and he was a year behind me at Northwestern and a year behind me at Harvard Law School. Right. And then I, he started teaching at DePaul when I started teaching right. at Chicago Kent. Right. And so we kind of kept in touch um, uh, during that period of time in which we were both in Chicago at lower status law schools. When he told me that a couple of years ago, I um, I started thinking about writing an article called The Tale of Two Law Professors because <laughs> Chicago, every, there's so many things going on there. But anyway, thank you again for doing this. I really appreciate it. I hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks, Eric. Thanks. Have fun. Thanks, Stay Randy. safe. Take Be care. good. Bye-bye.